We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 3. That's on page 1004 in the Church Bibles. So Mark chapter 3, page 1004. We're starting at verse 7 and reading through to verse 35. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Jerusalem, Judea, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boagenes, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Thanks, Elise. Morning, everyone. Uh, Most will know my name is Matt Fuller. I'm the vicar here, but if we haven't met, uh, that's me. My favorite thing I found out this week, um, not the most important, right, but my favorite, was um, uh, this nickname that Jesus gives James and John, the the Sons of Thunder. I thought, that's just very strange. What's happening? There was... um, uh, there was an Australian rock band in the late 1970s called Sons of Thunder. Now, if you were going to set up a Christian rock band, what would you call yourself? It's a good choice. Sons of Thunder. How did I know this? Phil Alcock still has the album. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Now his wife is greatly disturbed. But um, you can YouTube them. You can find footage of them. But I think you have 2,000 better things to do uh, with your time. But um, uh, here we are. If you're just joining us today, we're working our way this term through these uh, early chapters in Mark's Gospel. And uh, after two months, uh, we're still in chapter three, so we're, we're uh, cracking on. But uh, a little longer, our passage today, verses 7 to 35. Let me pray. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this together. Our great God and Father, thank you as we've heard that you're the one who speaks. Uh, You speak with tender, fatherly care to us. We pray again that we would read, mark, learn, inwardly digest, be transformed by what you have to say to us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, sometimes it can be a bit hard to track down uh, or to work out who family members are. I'm sure you've made a mistake at some point. If you look through our um, church database, church suite, uh, you could say, oh, there are five Smiths. Are they all related? No. No, there's a couple, a brother and sister, but the rest is just common surname. There are five Chans. Are they all related? No. Uh, There's a husband and wife and the rest, you know, they're they're, they're different. There are four Dowsons. Yeah, they are related. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, you, you don't always know just because someone's got the same surname or even they sort of hang out and look at uh, one mistake. A, a nameless member of staff a few years ago, it was a church weekend away. And uh, a, a man and a woman with the same surname, they were allocated a double room. <laughs> and uh, apparently she arrived first and was sort of just sifting and sorting out her stuff and then geek, his key card goes in and he walks in and there she is in the double bed and hello. Um, <laughs> now, I'm all for a little bit of gentle matchmaking in church, but that is just a little, <laughs> it's not right, is it? It's not right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we were able to remedy the situation by a few blushes. You know who you are. But sometimes you can be a bit confused just by names. The issue here today is Mark doesn't want us to be confused about who's in God's family. Don't be confused about that. It's possible. There can be some uh, in, uh, who look religious, they're dressed in religious finery, and yet we might have real question marks. Really? Given what they're saying? And then, of course, there are others who are, in one sense, quite unlikely, given criminal backgrounds, but genuinely are in Christian family. They can certainly overcome that. But the issue in the text here is, who is? Who is in God's family? If you were here uh, last time, uh, things have been heating up. Uh, Jesus is uh, in Galilee, hasn't ventured far at this point, and he's had five little conflicts with the, uh, the Pharisees, these religious group uh, in Galilee. And we got as far as chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus had revealed that they were pretty corrupt in their hearts. And so chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. So there's a chilling note at that point. But in our section today then, Mark is recording or presenting lots of different reactions that people have to Jesus. The crowd, these 12 disciples, his blood relations, these teachers from Jerusalem. Which of them, how are these different groups responding to him? Which are in the family is the question. Who is in 
and who is out of God's family. And really the passage, it's heading to uh, the last little bit, chapter 3, 31 to 35. And you get it at the end. Whoever does God's will is in my family, my brother, my sister, my mother. So we'll work through it like this. Who's in God's family? Uh, Those inside, they sit with him and believe. Those outside, they reject his forgiveness. So for goodness sake, come inside and join the family. There's the implication. So three little things. Those who are outside, sorry, excuse me, those who are inside the family, they sit with him and believe. Those who are outside, they reject his forgiveness. So really, come inside and join him. Let's work through it then. Those who are inside... Sit with Jesus and believe. We're going to start uh, ironically, or not ironically, uh, um, strangely. We're going to start at the end. Let me read it again, verses 31 to 35. It's the clearest and it really explains what's going on in the whole lot. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. They're outside. A crowd was sitting around him inside. And they told him, your mother and brothers are outside they're outside. You're getting the theme. You get what Mark's trying to say to us. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So that's quite straightforward, whoever does God's will. Now, let's make sure we don't misunderstand that. And uh, hopefully we don't. Uh, when he says, don't think of that in terms of a sort of um, uh, a tick list obedience. You know, the, it's not that. Not, not like the school teacher. Well, whoever does my will is my, my favorite pupil. Whoever sits up straight. Whoever doesn't call out. Whoever puts their hand up neatly. Whoever. Um, it, not that. Not in that sense legalistic. No. And some would hear it as that. God's will is whatever. Uh, that you never swear, that you recycle avidly, that you um, um, bring a pudding every week to church, whatever it may be. The, um, not, not in that sense. Because Jesus, if you've been with us throughout Mark's gospel, he's already told us what it means to do his will. The first sermon he spoke in chapter 1. How do you enter his family? How do you enter his kingdom? You repent and believe the good news. You repent and believe the gospel. The gospel message, Jesus is God's king. He has died so all that you've done wrong can be forgiven. He's risen again to new life so you can live forever in eternity. He's coming again to judge this world. Trust him and repent. Don't trust yourself. That's what it means to do his will so far in Mark's gospel. Okay? It's to trust him. Or let me put it, uh, a daft story, let me put it in these terms. Uh, imagine a young man has decided he's a chef. I'm a chef. He's just woken up one day. That's what I do in my life. And, uh, but he goes in big. So he takes a lease on, uh, on a property and he invests all his money into this restaurant. And he's all in. All his money goes in. Works incredibly hard on everything that he's cooking and the decor and the service. He's all in. And it's a disaster. No one is coming. And the food he's turning out is pretty grim. And he's lost tens and tens of thousands. He's bankrupt. And then one day walks in. Um, let's say Jamie Oliver. 
whoever your favorite chef is. I was reading this week about the, 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 the top earning chefs. He's number four. The, the, above him was Nobu and two others I'd never heard of. But anyway, we all know Jamie Oliver, if, if certainly in this country. Jamie Oliver walks in, all right, mate, and uh, says, uh, okay, so what's the problem? What are, you, what are your debts? Oh, no, about 100,000, right? It's all right. I'm worth 350 million pounds. <laughs> Who knew? I'm worth about that much. I can, I can pay off your debts. I can pay off anyone's debts. I'm that wealthy. And I'll tell you what, I'll come in. You just you know, take a back seat. I'll cook. I'll run the kitchen. I'll put my name above the door. I'll tell all my mates and hangers-on, because that's what he is a celeb. I'll tell all my hangers-on to come and eat here. It'll be fine. You're sorted now. Pucker. And, um, well, at that point, the young man has a choice. Either accept. Okay, he can wipe out my debt. He can completely change what's happening here. Or I stubbornly think, no, I'm going to do it. I don't want someone else to do it. That's his choice. We might say, or or put it in this language, the will of Jamie is that he stops trusting himself and trusts in the celebrity chef who will transform, who will wipe away his debts and transform his fortunes. Stop trusting yourself. Repent. Trust in me. That's the will of Jamie at this point. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Chapter 3, verse 35. To do my will. What is Jesus' will? Stop trusting yourself. Trust that I can wipe away all your debts. I've got more than enough for anyone. And trust that I'll live, I'll lead you better. Don't trust yourself. Who's in the family? It's those who sit with him and accept that Jesus can pay their debt. Accept that Jesus can give them forgiveness. They don't trust themselves. Now let's see how that fits in with some of these other groups and responses. Uh, Very briefly on um, 7 to 12. What's going on here? You've got a large crowd, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Eudamea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. What's happening here? People are coming from miles away now. Not just Galilee. He's causing a big fuss. In one sense, the world is now being drawn to this man. But why, verse 8? Because they heard all he was doing. They're drawn to what he's performing. They're not drawn because of what he's teaching. And if you've been with us, he told us in chapter 1, my priority is to teach and to preach, not to perform miracles. There'd always be people like that. Oh, Jesus. Interesting. He can do what for me? Oh, oh, hold on a minute. He says I have to follow him, and he's in charge. No thanks. That's the crowd. That's why Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone who you, you've recognized who I am. Don't tell anyone about that, because I don't want them following me on those terms. There's a crowd. Then he appoints the 12 disciples in verses 13 to 19. Jesus goes up a mountain and says, I'm going to have 12 disciples. Chapter 3, verse 13. He went up on a mountainside and called to them, excuse me, called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12. Okay. 
If I told you very quickly, no, I'm not going to. But if I said, let's shut your Bibles, can you name the 12? How would you get on? Well, yeah, James and John, like the sons of thunder, and um, uh, Peter, uh, 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 Judas, awkward, um, uh, Andrew, uh, um, and that's kind of the point. I mean, they are listed here, but then the rest of the gospel, they're just the 12. They're the 12. Because the individual names doesn't super matter a great deal. They're the 12 because what Jesus is doing here, everyone recognizes he's gone up on a mountainside and called 12. Because in the Old Testament, God created a people for himself on Mount Sinai. Read Exodus 19. And Moses goes up a mountainside and the Lord says, 12 tribes are my people. Here, Jesus is saying, not that anymore. Here, I'm going to come up a mountainside. 12 disciples, from them will grow all my people. And how? Not by birth, because you trust me. You repent and believe the gospel. He's redefining who's in the family. Is what he's doing here. We're told, why did he appoint them? Um, So verse uh, 14, he appointed 12. Why? Two things, that they might be with him is the first. And secondly, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Two things. Uh, The second, you think, what's that combination to preach and drive out demons? Those two, if you've been with us in Mark, they just go hand in hand all all the time. Because it is when the message of Jesus, that you can enter his kingdom if you repent and believe, is believed that you move from one kingdom, Satan's, to another, Jesus's. Those two always go hand in hand in Mark. Now, look, for you and me, these 12, they're obviously unique, these 12 disciples. I put down some other references. You can chase them down later. There had to be 12. There had to be 12. When Judas goes, he has to be replaced. There has to be 12. It's the number that matters. There's, there's a unique element. And yet also in Mark's gospel, they are presented as disciples that you and I can follow a little something from. And what are they told here? They're told they would be with him and then go out and speak for him. To be with him. I don't think that is unique. Obviously, they had an intense relationship. But by the time you get to our key element of the passage, verses 32 to 35, there's a whole crowd with him. It's not unique to the 12. You're meant to be with him. And this, this may be so obvious it's not even worth saying. Uh, but let me say it just in case. It is just so foundational to Christian living that you sit with Jesus. There has never been a mature Christian who hasn't sat with him, taken time regularly to hear him speak from the scriptures, to respond to him in prayer, to gather with his people to encourage. There just isn't such a thing as a mature Christian who doesn't sit with Jesus. Now, it's so basic, but let's not forget it because it's so obvious. You don't become godly unless you sit with Jesus. You don't make progress against recurrent failings, flaws, sins, unless you sit with Jesus. You don't 
address the deeper ways you've been distorted by the past unless you sit with Jesus. You just don't. And then you go and speak of him. But those are, those, those are the people on the inside, all right? Those who are inside, they sit with Jesus. That's the picture given here. They trust him. They believe in him. They don't trust themselves. By contrast, you've got those who are outside. And what we're told there is those outside reject his forgiveness. Now, verse 22, at the end of our passage, you get a classic what do you ever want to call it, Mark sandwich. You get the family, and then these teachers from Jerusalem, and then you get the family again. And you've got to hold it all uh, together to get Mark's point. But in uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, here's the family. So uh, Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. I mean, what is that? I mean, that's quite a, you know, that's quite a crowd. But anyway, that's what's going on. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. You can sort of imagine that. Oh, for goodness sake, this thing's got out of control. He's just, you know, he's just full of himself. We've just got to pull him back, you know. He's going to be, woo, hey, hey Mary Joseph's, yeah, I know, we know, we know. Um, and so they've gone to uh, take him in hand, as it were. But then we cut away from the family. And verse 22, we go to these, well, they've got some big hitters here, verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. Now, hold on a minute. <laughs> um, these are the big guns. This is not just the, now the local religious leaders. These are like the experts, the teachers of the law, have come from Jerusalem, the capital city, to sort this thing out because this is getting a bit of a nuisance and a bit out of hand. So what's their verdict? Well, uh, verse 22... The teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem and they go for a bit of Freddie Mercury. He's possessed by Beelzebul. He's got a devil set aside for this one, for this one, for him, for him, for him. And um, at this point, well, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I'm afraid I'm just going to assert something here. The Bible insists from cover to cover, there is a personal, individual, malevolent being Call him Satan, the devil, Beelzebub here, Beelzebub in the Old Testament. Same name. And he's evil. And he opposes God. And he's a creature, so he will lose. But he has a, a, a network or an army, whatever you want to call it, of, of demons. And they have influence in this world. And we sit here in London in, in 2023 and think, oh, I'm a bit uncertain about that. And most parts of the world would say you're mad for doubting it, just so you know. But that's just assumed in the Scriptures, and you have to throw away the whole Bible if you disagree with it, I'm afraid. But they say, quite a strong claim, that Jesus is possessed by the devil. And Jesus responds with two little parables, verses 23 down to 27. First one's quite straightforward, verse 23. Jesus called them over to him, because he always knows what people are thinking and saying, and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be so stupid. 
That's just not how anyone operates. If it were a football match, wherever it may be, and Arsenal were playing, they don't tackle their own players. That would cause a fight. They don't tend to score as many as they want in their own goal. That would cause a loss. That's just not what people do if they want to win. What you're describing is a nonsense. It's just not what happens. And second little picture, by the way, verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Just to be clear, that's what's happened, says Jesus. I am plundering from Satan. I resisted his temptations in the desert. He has no hold over me. And now, yes, he has strength, but I am stronger. And so I'm pulling people out of his realm, out of their possession, and into mine. That's what's taking place. Jesus says, my kingdom is at war with Satan's and I'm winning. And so here's the payoff in these two little, and they're pretty massive statements that are made in verses 28 and 29. Let's take them in turn. They both matter enormously. Verse 28. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Pause. That's extraordinary. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. And many of us will skip over that verse and say we know. And some of us need to really pause very quite a long time and say, well, let me say to you, do you know that? All. If you remember maths, you have a circle. There's nothing outside the circle. There's no subset. All. If you put it in percentage terms, that's 100. All. All your sins can be forgiven. And I assume there's one or two who just desperately need to hear that. The thing that you've not forgiven yourself for, the possibly criminal act of the past, the certainly painful way you've inflicted upon others, he can forgive you all. There's nothing that can't be forgiven. It's just very, I think twice, I've sat down with someone and they've just really struggled with this. And I mean, it's a bit daft and you can tell me I'm a bad minister, that's okay. But we've got to say, write it all out and now let's throw it in the fire. It's gone. Jesus really has forgiven. Now, there may be consequences as a result of what's happened, but what you've done has been forgiven. So what does verse 29 mean, if that's true? Um, Verse 28, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but, verse 29, but, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Ouch. What's that then? Well, we're given a clue. Verse 30, uh, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, remember, they. These are the teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem. These are the, the top experts in the land. Their job, 
to read the Old Testament and 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 explain it. They would have read many promises in the Old Testament of when God's king comes, the spirit will be upon him and he will perform miraculous deeds. So verse, um, excuse me, Isaiah 61. Uh, just one example, Isaiah 61 verse 1, which is the, uh, the bit that Jesus reads when he goes into the synagogue in Luke Four, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus, that's what he's doing. The religious teachers come and they should know the Old Testament better than anyone. They should know that when God's Messiah, when God's King, who's going to save the world comes, he will act in the power of God's Spirit. He will heal people miraculously. He will deliver people from demon possession. They see all this in front of them and say, that's wicked. They know that's not right. That is a deliberate, willful, stubborn, intent to call what is good Satan's work. It's not right. The Spirit is rarely mentioned in Mark's Gospel. I've put the references down at the bottom. When he is mentioned, God is Father, Son, Spirit. When the Spirit is mentioned, his work is transformation to change lives. And here, these teachers who should know better than anyone They're rejecting the Spirit's work through Jesus. They're saying, we don't need God to change us. We don't need God to renew us. We don't need anyone to forgive our debt. We don't need it. And this one who's saying we do, we think he's evil. That is beyond the young man saying, Jamie Oliver, I don't know you. I don't want you. Because they should know much better. So here is an acute warning to religious leaders, verse 29, who reject the work of the Spirit in inspiring God's infallible word, in in opening people's eyes so they can see who Jesus is. So I think you should fear verse 29 this morning if you're in some high religious position, if you're something like a bishop in the Church of England and you say, I don't need Jesus to die for my forgiveness, and I don't think anyone needs the work of the Spirit to become a Christian. If that's you, you should be worried. I don't think that's many here this morning, unless you're hiding your bishopness um, uh, beneath other clothes. The best commentator, I think, on this bit of Mark's Gospel is Dick France. Let me quote. This is a warning to those who adopt a position of deliberate rejection and antagonism. This is not an attempt to frighten those of tender conscience. Can you hear that rightly? This is a warning to those who are in religious authority and adopt a position of deliberate rejection, willful antagonism. It's not a word for those of tender conscience. Those who are outside God's family, they reject his forgiveness. So if you're inside, if you're inside the family, if you're part of the family, you sit with him, you believe in him. You say, I need you. I need you to wipe out my debt. I need you. I trust you, not myself. If you're outside, you say, don't need that. I'll sort it out myself. 
So come inside and join the family. That's obvious, isn't it? Verse 35, come inside, and, come inside and join the family. Whoever does God's will, which is to trust my gospel, is my brother and sister and mother. Can I just say that that is extraordinary? For roughly half the room, you could walk out here, and this is the females, you could walk out, the women, and uh, how was church this morning? Yeah, it was all right. Did I ever tell you that I'm actually Jesus' mother? I couldn't do that because I'm not a woman. But you, if you're a woman, you could walk out and say, I've, I've, I was you know, just reminded this morning, I'm Jesus' mother. Now, you might get some strange looks. You might need to explain what's uh, in the context for it. But that is the intimacy of what he's talking about. Let me just give you I mean, there's a million things we could say. Let me just highlight two benefits that strike me from entering the family. Two little cross-references. One, in John 19, do you remember as Jesus is dying and uh, he's right at the point of death as he dies upon the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother and he sees next to him uh, John, the disciple John, and he says, John, this is your mother, look after her, and, and mother, this is your son, he'll care for you now. And then he dies. So at the point of maximum weakness, at the point where he's got nothing left to give, at the point where he's just about to breathe his last death, he says, I care so much for my family, I'm just going to sort that out, and then I'll die. If you're part of Jesus' family, brother, sister, don't ever forget how much he cares for you. Seconds before he died, he sorted that out. And we're in varied places here this morning. And some are facing horrors in the weeks and months ahead. But if you're in Jesus' family, he cares for you. And he'll never let you go in eternity. He'll keep you there. He'll keep you. He'll take you there. He'll unite you with the ones you love who are in his family too. If you're in the family, know that he cares for you. cares for you. And one other thing that struck me being in the family, remember your gain. Remember how much you gain. So um, for no better reason than thinking about family, uh, my thoughts turn to Romans chapter 8 again. Uh, we may have that, uh, Eleanor. So Romans chapter 8, familiar verses. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Now if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the images of, of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. If you're in the family, you inherit the world. You're a co-heir with Christ. You inherit the world if you're in the family. Isn't that extraordinary? I know we know it if you've been Christians. But can I remind you how extraordinary it is what you inherit? Okay, I was reading the paper this week. Gina Reinhardt, someone will correct me afterwards if that's not how you pronounce her name. But Gina Reinhardt, she is apparently uh, Australia's wealthiest citizen. Uh, yes, I'm getting some affirming nods. Um, so from at least one Aussie. Uh, she's uh, two. Okay, any, any higher than two? No. Um, Gina Reinhardt is Australia's apparently wealthiest citizen worth about 35 billion US dollars. And she's at war with her children. 
over the inheritance from her dead husband. And they're fighting it out legally. And you think, oh, you know, 35 billion, you've probably got, you can probably share. Can't you share? Can you not share? But anyway, it's not, you know, it's not always about the money, it's about relationships and all sorts of things. But it's extraordinary, isn't it, how often you read of wealthy families at war over the millions, or in this case, the billions. Jesus says, I just want to give it to you. 35 billion, I don't want to be rude. That's, that's less than pennies. I'm saying to my family, to my brothers, to my sisters, I own the world and I want to share it with you. Just trust me. Why would you not be in this family? He's paid for your forgiveness. He cares deeply for you. And he says, come and inherit the world. Love being part of his family. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, for many of us, these are so familiar, these truths. But Lord, please, if we're struggling and we're not certain, persuade us what is true. For those of us who've known them for years, would we once again be deeply struck how wonderful it is that all our sins can be forgiven. That the care of the Lord Jesus, that we just see that little vignette manifested in his care of his mother as he dies, is wonderful. That he offers us the world to inherit and guarantees that he'll take us home to be with him. Father, would we know who's in the family? It's those who trust Jesus. And would we be delighted that that is us? Amen.